Amen. Tell you what, while your kids are exiting and uh, you guys are joining us, whether online or here in the house, um, Matthew 24, while you're turning there, I want to tell you what I'm fairly certain has been taking place the last few minutes in here as we've been singing about the mercy. So I hope you caught that one song uh, just a couple of songs ago. Did you catch the theology and the order? So it talked about the goodness and then the mercy and then the blood. And that is the proper order. It's the goodness of God. God is good and that causes him to be a merciful God. But in order to be a merciful God, he has to base that on something. So it took the blood of Christ. And so I appreciate the great theology that has been put before us in song this morning. You're in Matthew 24. Uh, so what's been happening this morning is there's some of you were able to sing those songs from your heart and worship to the Lord because you are well aware of where the, where the Lord has brought you from. You're, you're singing that like, oh, I'm, you, 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 knew, you know how unworthy you are, and you're like, man, I know where he has brought me from. And you were able to sing that from your heart. But listen to me, there was from other folks, and you'll know who you are. You're heavy. You came in really heavy, and today you don't feel worthy. And you needed the verbal reminder. And so you were, as you were singing, you were rehearsing truth, and you could really, literally feel your spirit being lifted, and that's a percentage that is here this morning. So different ways the Lord uses his word put to music. Matthew 24, in a little bit, Lord willing, the goal hopefully is to finish chapter 24, uh, a massive chapter with lots of ramifications. Notice the title. I don't usually point out titles of the sermon. To me, they're kind of one of the least important things that, that I, I type out each week. We've got to have something at the head of, of these pieces of paper that we give you, right? Uh, but notice this week, how then shall we live? So we've been talking a lot about prophecy, and this is a chapter of prophecy. But guys, if all we are is curious or informed and it doesn't affect how we live, then prophecy has not done what it was meant to do. It is supposed to affect our lives. And so in a moment, I want to read verses 36 to 51. But before we do, I want to do, we do each week a, a, a review. And I think what I'm going to do is a quick review of where we finished last week. We had a long note, one of the longest that we've ever had, finished last week. I'm not going to go into all of it. But here's the scene. It's the Passover week, a couple of days before Christ will be crucified. Soon he'll be put on trial. He has left the temple. His public teaching, he's left the temple and he's declared judgment is coming to Israel because they kill the prophets and they're about to kill the Son of God. This is their pattern and God is going to bring judgment. So he leaves. Then some of the disciples start pointing out the temple and how glorious and magnificent and impressive that it is. And he says, do you see all these things? Do you not? Not one stone will be left upon another. Not one stone of these temple buildings. We know when that happened, that was A.D. 70, when the Romans literally fulfilled the prediction and prophecy that Jesus gave. They moved down the Kidron Valley over across about half a mile, three-quarter of a mile away, apparently sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking back at Jerusalem, and then the disciples want to know, when will that happen? When will these things be? They ask in verse 3, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So here's that last, one of the, like next to the last note last week, somewhere along these lines. The best I could tell as we've gone through verses 4 down through verse 35 last week, here's a summation of what we think that means. 
Some of it did have to do, some of this prophecy had to do and was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and killed 1.1 million Jews. So that did happen. But it seems that in that first sermon, verses 4 through 14, that the Lord was giving some general descriptions, general feel of what the time would be like. What's it going to be like before all of the prophecies are fulfilled? And so he gives a general description of what life would be like on earth from A.D. 30, let's say if that's when he spoke these words, until the completion of, of it all, chapter 24 and 25, what's life going to be like there? And he gave us this list of things. There's going to be many false prophets. There's going to be many false teachers, many false Christs. There's going to be wars. There's going to be famines. There's going to be wars. And so we never need to look at a war and think, that's the one. This has to be the thing that sets off and brings it all to an end. We've got to be careful there. Um, I, I hear that happening often. We don't have the right to do that. So what he says is there's going to be False teachers, false prophets, false Christ. There's going to be wars and famines and pestilence, according to Mark and Luke. They wrote that. So there's going to be diseases and pandemics and all of those things. And there's going to be earthquakes all throughout this time. And there's going to be high peaks and valleys, highs and lows, sometimes more, sometimes less. And there's going to be persecution. You can expect persecution to take place during the time that we're waiting for the end. And there's going to be a falling away. People who act like they are Christians, they're going to quit and fall away and stop following Jesus. Why? Two or three reasons. Because of the false teachers, they follow them. Some sin just looks too enticing, and so they're going to follow their sin. And then some, the persecution is going to get hot and heavy, and they're going to quit because I don't really love Jesus that much, and they've been faking it the whole time. And so they leave and apostatize when the persecution comes. But all those are just like birth pangs. They, they hit... And they get more frequent as the time of the end nears and more intense as the end of time nears. But if you remember this where we finished last week, verse 15 stops giving general description. It gets very specific. It says, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's a real event that is coming, a very specific. Without going into the details, I'm going to give you quickly a summation of a couple of sermons, right? If we take Daniel and couple it with Revelation, here's what appears to be going to happen. Again, you'd have to dive into this. There's going to be a, a European descendant person. We call him the Antichrist in the New Testament. He's the lawless one in Thessalonians. But he's this prince that is to come in the book of Daniel. He's going to come and he's going to make a, a strong covenant with many. And apparently that's going to be, I will protect you. He's going to be very powerful and he'll have armies. And one of the many that he makes the strong covenant with will be the Jews, and they're going to trust him. Reading between the lines, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., so it appears when he offers them this protection, they're going to believe it, and they're going to start rebuilding their temple. It seems like the, the temple has to be rebuilt because of what happens in the middle. So there's this seven-year contract of peace. In the middle point of that, he, it seems, is going to perform. We don't know the details of exactly what the abomination of desolation, but Revelation makes it seems like that he's going to put, with the help of his false prophet, put his image in the temple and demanding that everyone worships him as though he is God. And that'll be the clue to the Jews that he's not who we thought, and so they will reject him, and then he will turn up persecution against them. On earth, that 
event, the abomination of desolation, and the revelation, we could even say that's when the Antichrist is really revealed. He's really revealed for who he is. Then the Jews are to flee, and he's going to persecute them so that verse 21 told us it's going to be a time of great tribulation. So that's, verse 15 is a specific event. The great tribulation is not like all the other tribulations. This is the worst it's ever been, the worst it ever will be. And then as we get to verse 29, 30, 31, apparently toward the end of that, my best guess is probably months before the end of the three and a half years of great tribulation, the description start, that verse 29 happens. The sun is darkened. The moon doesn't give its light like it did before. The heavens, the powers of the heavens that holds everything in order out there, they're compromised. Jesus relaxes that. Things start coming through, falling to the earth, tsunamis, earthquakes, waves are happening. The world is in turmoil. They're, they're just tore out of the frame, totally distressed. People are dying for fear and because of all these things that are happening. And then there's going to be a, a sign, either an emblem or a banner or a marking something in the sky. Or the Lord himself is the sign. And all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn when they see the sign and they see the Son of Man, Jesus, returning to earth. Now, some are going to mourn because, uh uh-oh, more judgment. The Jews are going to look on him whom they pierced, and they will mourn because they are sorrowful for what they've done. They now recognize he really is the Messiah. And after their mourning and sorrowing and repenting, then they are saved and rescued by him. And so that's kind of a quick overview. And then the Lord sends out his angels and they bring in the elect to protect them. And so here's what's happening. We have all these general descriptions, verse 4 to 14. But starting verse 15, really we could say through verse 35 are very specific things. When you see those things, you know the end is near. So it's going to happen. Heaven and earth are going to pass away, but Jesus says, my words will not pass away. What he's saying, everything I say is going to happen. Now that brings us to verse 36. Let's read the text. But concerning that day. So it's going to happen. But concerning that day and hour. Now we know he's talking about time. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, Jesus says. That tells me that apparently God regularly lets the angels in on more than he lets us in on. But on this thing, not even the angels know this. In fact, he says, nor the Son. He's talking about himself. Not even the Son, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. The only one who knows. That then takes us to verse 37. Did you catch it? Nobody's going to know. It's happening. Nobody knows exactly when. No one knows when. Except the Father, verse 37. Here's what that's going to lead to. For as were the days of Noah, as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Watch. How life was being lived on earth way back thousands of years before Christ said this is how it will be lived whenever he comes back. It's going to be a much, it's going to be the same. In fact, the word for in verse 37 that begins it tells us. This is going to happen because of verse 36. Because no one knows exactly what like before the flood. Flood hadn't happened yet. It's getting ready to happen. What was it like? In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. They're doing all those things. Until the day when Noah entered the ark. So they're just living life. 
until the day, we know Noah goes in the ark, closes the door, he's in there for seven days. Then flood came and the fountains of the great deep burst forth. But they're out there, they're clueless. You're going to see the word unaware coming up. Verse 39. And they were unaware until. Second time we see the word until. Something happens all of a sudden. Now they're no longer unaware. Now they know what's going to happen. But it's too late. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And Jesus says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's going to be just like that. Then, so what's it going to be like then when the coming of the Son of Man happens? Then two men will be in the field. You see the two men working in the field? Two men are in the field. One is taken. One is left. Verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill. Apparently, this is a little small mill, a little, a little personalized, and, and they're, they're just turning something, and now you turn it, and you turn it back and forth, and it's grinding the mill. So two women sitting face happen. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one left. Therefore, so verse 42 kicks off. What are we going to do about what was said in verse 36 to 41? So here comes verse 42 to 44. Therefore, stay awake. For you, note I underline the word therefore and for both in verse 42 and 44 because to me it says this, because of verse 36, because you don't know when, verse 42, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, he gives a quick illustration, an analogy, very common sense, we can all relate to it. Know this, that if the master of the house had known, if he had known, if, it's hypothetical, if he had known in what part of the night the thief was coming. Uh-oh, thief's coming. If he had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. He would have done something about it. He would have stayed awake and resisted and done something to keep it from happening. 44, therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming. Hear that, hear that grace view. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So I'm coming. You don't know when. Be, be awake. Be ready. Be ready. Now watch verse 45. Having said to be ready, watch what it means to be ready. You ready? Here we go. Look at verse 45. So liquidate all your assets. You see that? Quit your job. Go buy a house in the mountains. Move up there with you and your family. And live fearfully and like a hermit all the rest of your days. Staring at the sky three or four hours a day. Reading your Bible six or seven, eight hours a day. And watching your trusty news channel for two or three days. Hours a day. Oh, wait. I misread that. That's not in the Bible. That's not the plan. That's not what ready... Be ready. Sell everything. Go to the hills. Get out of here. Live like a hermit. Hide away. Wrong answer. Listen, there is coming a time where the right thing to do will be to flee. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Don't live that way. That doesn't fulfill anything that the Lord has told us to do. Verse 45. Here's the real way to be ready. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Faithful and wise here he's, here's what he's like. He's the one whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Did you catch it? I'm leaving. You're my servant. 
I'm leaving you some resources. You have access to my resources. Your job is to tend to the household while I'm gone. When are you coming back? I'm not telling you. You just be doing this. Verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Finds him doing exactly that. Truly I say to you, he, the master, will set him, the servant, over all his possessions if he's found faithful. Now on the flip side, here comes this other servant. He's in the same scenario, same setup. Master's leaving. You have this assignment. You have these resources. Not telling you when I'm coming back, but I'll be coming back. Verse 48, if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed. (laughs) He's delayed. It's been weeks. It's been months. I don't know when he's coming back. And if he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, uh uh-oh, that's not good. What's going to happen? The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's notice three things this morning. Number one, verses 36 to 41, Jesus describes life before his coming. What's life going to be like before his coming? I'm going to say this multiple times today. Verse 35 means everything Jesus said is going to happen. Verse 36 says, no one's going to know. Not even the angels, nor the Son, the Father only. So that's kind of confusing. There's a, by the way, praise the Lord, today's message is not nearly as complicated and technical as the previous three. So praise the Lord, it's going to be a lot lighter than that. Relatively speaking, lighter compared to anything is lighter than the last three weeks, right? So, but there's a couple of spots uh, that we have to, have to look at. So here's one. No one knows the day or the hour. So it's happening, but no one knows when. And that's a key thing. I, the, what I keep drawing from this text is verse 36 causes verses 37 to 41. Verse 36, not knowing, causes these things. Verse 42 to 44 is like, now what are we supposed to do since we know about this? And then the other is like, what does it look like? That's kind of where we're heading if you want to get the outline in your mind. So here's the problem. No one knows except the Father. Why? Why does the Father know? Because God knows every, guys, listen, God knows everything that can be known. But here's the problem. Thought Jesus is God. Yes. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Jesus is fully God. And Jesus is fully man. He became a man 2,000 years ago. Before that, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, was the eternal son of God. Not yet a man. 2,000 years ago, he became a man. When he became, I'm I'm preaching a Christmas message real quick. When he became a man, he did not stop being God at all, but he became fully man. We don't understand it, but both natures are fully intact, 100% intact. So God knows all things, and Jesus is God. So then Jesus should know all things. What's happening here in verse 36? I'm going to offer you my opinion as my opinion. No more will have you write the following. If you disagree, that's fine. We'll just disagree on it. We're going to chalk up Jesus' lack of knowledge here to him temporarily. This is a note we've taken at Christmas before. When Christ came to the earth, became a man, he temporarily, that's a key word, temporarily laid aside the independent, that's a key word, the independent use of his divine attributes while on earth. While he's on earth, he lays aside for a time period the independent use. In other words, he's God, and as God, he can do and know and has all power and all knowledge. But he lays that aside for a period of time 
to not be used independently. You say, what does that mean? Dependently, as the Father wants him to know things, he has supernatural knowledge. There's evidence of it all through the gospel. Jesus knows things there's no one could know except God. And yet there's other times where Jesus doesn't know information. Jesus has all power because God has all power. And there's other times like he's not even strong enough to carry the cross. And he's falling asleep in a boat because he's so tired. So as God deems him to be able to draw on these things and is God's will, he knows and he has power. And other times he doesn't know and he doesn't have power, strength. I believe that now, is my opinion, now the Lord would say, I and the Father know the plan, but no one else knows the plan. So where would you get that from? I'm not going to turn there. Maybe it's hinted at in Acts chapter 1 when they come back after the death and resurrection of Christ. They come back to Jerusalem, and the disciples are like, is now the time we're setting up for the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. That time he doesn't say it's not for me or you. It's as though I'm still not telling you. I didn't know it before. That's how I interpret that. Now, He knows, but it's still not time. You just need to live without knowing the details, but I want you to live a certain way. All right. So what is verse 36? One more thought on it. You ready? And I saw it literally this morning. Not the details, but the whole tone. When preachers teach and preach in such a way as to describe verbally situations that if it happens how they anticipate then the Lord has to come back during our lifetime. There's a little thing going on over in Eastern Europe right now, right? Something's going on over there with Russia and Ukraine. And we've got the Russian uh, president and the Chinese leader doing photo ops over there. Listen, guys, one of these days, some set of preachers are going to make all these predictions, and they're actually going to get it right. But if you go out and say, that domino and that domino and Iran's with them and China's with them and over here this group and NATO, and if that happens, then this whole group has to happen and that leads to, uh, it's going to be, okay, maybe. But if you, if you think we have to be the generation in which Jesus comes back, you're fooling yourself. All you're doing is being arrogant and prideful and ignorant. We don't have the right to say that. The Lord may not come back for 500 more years. He may not come back for 1,000 more years. He may come back in our lifetime. Very soon. It seems that way. I'll add that. It seems that way. The other thing we wonder sometimes, no one knows. So here we wonder, Jeff, do you think the Antichrist is maybe on earth right now? Maybe. Do you think he knows who he is? No, he doesn't know who he is. You don't think he knows who he is? No, he doesn't. He can't. Why? Because Satan doesn't know who the Antichrist is. Because Satan cannot know who the Antichrist is because all he can do is have some candidates ready because he's going to apparently go in their body and use their body and overpower them and use them. But he, all he can do is react. Satan doesn't know the timing. All he can do is whenever God starts doing his thing, then I'm going to do my thing. So he doesn't know who he is. Neither does Satan. Now look at verse 38 and 39. Verse 37 verse. For as... Where are the days of Noah? So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus attributes, here I go again, I'm hitting this again and again. Verse 37 to 41 happens because of verse 36. Because no one knows the day, then this is what ends up happening. People end up living then, at the end of time, how they lived before time. So how were they living? Look at verse 38. For as in the day, those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking Marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. I remember hearing that when I was a kid. 
and thinking how evil and wicked eating and drinking and marrying is. <laughs> is it sinful to eat? Is it sinful to eat? Is it sinful to drink drinks? Is it sinful to get married? A Christian, we know a Christian is to marry only another Christian, but getting married isn't sinful. Giving your child away in marriage isn't sinful. So if it's not sinful, then what's the point? He says this like it's a really negative thing. It is a negative thing. Write this down. There's nothing sinful about eating and drinking and marrying. The problem is that, here it is, they were just living life as usual. That's the problem in the flood. They're just living life as usual. No doubt, not only just around Noah, but all around the world at that time, people are just living life. It's business as usual. You say, okay, Jeff, what's the problem? The problem is that Noah had been preaching for 120 years that a flood was coming because he had special revelation from God. That's the problem. Nobody paid him any attention. And we guess, and it seems like, why, Jeff, why do you think they didn't pay him any attention? He's talking about a flood and all this big rain that's going to happen. They've never seen it rain. They've never seen it rain, and so they've never even seen the creek, the creek swell up or the river flood its banks. They've never seen a one-foot local flooding or a three-foot local flooding, much less a worldwide flood that's going to cover all the mountains. This sounds like a fairy tale. That's what Noah sounded like to them. You're just talking about a fairy tale. You're making this up. So they just blew it off until, until it's too late. What the Lord is saying, and it probably will happen to someone listening to this. At the end of time, there will be a group of people, and even all throughout, who hears about the Lord's return and the end of the age, and to them, that sounds as ridiculous and as, as much like a fairy tale. This stuff in verse 29, all that's going to happen, the sun and the moon and the stars and the powers of the heavens, that is so ridiculous. That sounds as, that's, that's what it sounded like to them back in the days of the flood. And then it happened. And it will happen. So now we look down. So people are just living life. Again, nothing sinful about what they were doing other than they were not paying attention to the revelation that God had revealed. Now look at verse 39. I'm sorry, verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. So here's the second part of this message that's kind of tricky. I really thought I was going to have more answers for you guys. Uh, after I saw this coming up, I'm like, okay, this is going to be great. Fin finally figure out what that means, right? Here's the problem. This passage, verse 40 and 41, presents several difficult questions. I've narrowed it down to two. Difficult question number one. Two men filled, one taken, one left. Two women, one taken, one left. First question. Is being taken good or bad? This being taken, is this good or is it bad? Do you want to be in the group that's taken? Do you not want to be in the group that's taken? It's a really hard question, right? Watch my arm motions. There's, there's two men, one's taken. Two women, one's taken. The others are left. Is it, does it mean this? There's group, one is taken, one is taken, one is taken. This one, over there's group, some of them are taken. Or is it this? They're taken. Or they're taken. They're taken. You see the difference? Are they taken at the end? Taken, you come over here. Or is it they're taken? <clears throat> or they're taken. So that little picture is drawn out in your next note. What are we looking at in verse 40 and 41? Is this church age Christians being raptured? One is taken and another left behind. Maybe. 
Or is this tribulation saints, tribulation saints, believers during the tribulation time, who are rescued and brought to the Lord, rescued? Is that what's being described? Or is what's being described the wicked being reaped, as we saw in the book of Revelation, where Christ has his sickle ready and he reaps the grain harvest for judgment. So what's happening here? Is it reaping for judgment? Is it Christians being raptured? Is it, new, is it, is it tribulation saints being rescued? The, near, the best I can say is I don't know. Okay? That's my conclusion. The near context is of Noah's group being swept away in judgment. After that, you have a thief taking things away. Seems like negative there. So maybe what it means is you don't want to be in the group that's taken because if you're left at the end of the age, then you're the ones that go into the millennial kingdom. You want to be left, those, that group being left at the, end, at the end of the age to go in the millennial kingdom. You don't want to be in this group that's judged and brought out and snatched out and reaped for judgment. But we could also look at it and say, man, this just seems like everyday life. I mean, a couple of guys, I get it. You got you to eat and you got to grind meal and you got to make your food no matter when it is. But if all this chaos is happening in verse 29 and just wild things are happening, then this kind of seems a little nonchalant. So aren't we talking about something maybe back before verse 15? And maybe it is talking about a rapture. So, yeah, again, I don't know. I don't know the answer. But here's the point. I mean, that's a bummer. I read that this week, and I was really hoping you'd done some homework, and you'd be able to tell us the answer to that. And I know there's some of you probably, again, these songs got a hold of me this morning. I got my sinuses flowing. I'm not sick. What was the point I was getting ready to make? Is what? Yes, the main point. Here it is. Here, guys, here's the main point. It doesn't matter if they're taken for judgment or if they're taking, taken for rapture or rescue. It doesn't matter. The point remains the same. Write this down. Here's the point of verses 37 to 41. Here's the point. Jesus is telling his followers, we must not become so immersed in the day-to-day things of this life that we end up losing sight of eternity. That's the point. Even good things, even fine things must not get us so distracted and immersed that we lose sight of the main thing, which is eternity. Even necessary things like eating and drinking. It's not that they're sinful. You're eating and drinking, right? Got to have your food and you got to have something to drink and you get married. So your note there says this. The main point is That we are not to become so immersed in the day-to-day, daily aspects of life, even the fine things and the necessary things, that we ultimately lose sight of eternity. What do you mean fine things and necessary things? There's nothing wrong with food. I know that we think a lot about food. We think a lot about drinks. We get married, right? But your food should not define you. Your your drinks should not define you. Your marriage should not define you. We have jobs. You got to have jobs. 
You got to pay the bills. There's a real life aspect to the Christian life. You got to pay the bills. We have houses. You got to buy the house. Maybe you have to build the house. You got to design it. You live in it for a while. You got to kind of go in and fix some things and redo some things. We have vehicles and you want to wash it every now and then. You got to change the oil and you got to fix that and fix that. Yes, this takes time and attention and we're just living normal life like all unsaved people. We watch sports. I watch sports. You watch sports. But are we defined by sports? We have hobbies. But do our hobbies define us? Do you know there are people in Anderson County? They they are defined by their team. They're defined by their hobby. They're defined by their job. They're defined by their marriage or that they are a parent over children. We take vacations and we plan those vacations. Nothing wrong with that. We wear clothes and so we have to shop. But at any point when all of these things just dominate our lives so that we act like they are the point of life, then we're living just like everyone else. We're living the usual business as usual day to day Life, And that's what the Lord is saying. Here's the point. Don't live like everybody else. They're living as usual. You, my people, live unusually, abnormally, because you know I'm coming back. You don't know when, but you know I'm coming back. One more thought out of 40 and 41. We're going to quickly go to the second point. The main point of 40 and 41 is not to give us a percentage. Well. That's a little more encouraging than I thought. Apparently, 50% of the people are going to be saved and 50% are going to be judged. I hate that the 50% are judged, but apparently, 50, no, it's not about a percentage. It's about a point. The point is what I just said. Don't be immersed by day to day. And here's the second point. It's not in your handout, but you need to note it. Here's the second thing the Lord's getting across in 40 and 41. They're side by side. The point is they're side by side. Who's side by side? The ones that are taken, the ones that are left. They're side by side. J.C. Ryle helps here when he writes the following. So what I'm about to read is not as bad as verse 51, but it is sobering. Whichever side you're falling on, it is sobering. Ryle says, quote, the children of God, children of God, and the children of the world are all side by side. Right now, they're side by side. You say, who, Jeff, you just waved your hands over in our whole auditorium here when you said children of God and children of the world. Both are in here this morning. Well, who is it? I don't know. We're going to find out. Ryle continues. But it will not always be so. Right now, we're side by side. Later, he writes, there shall at length be a complete division. A complete division is coming. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, later he writes, each party shall be separated from the other forevermore. That's what we need to understand. Once this taken and left happens, they are never side by side again. They're never together after that. You say, who are these? He brings it home. He wrote many more than this. I've narrowed down these three. He wrote, wives will be separated from husbands, parents from children, brothers from sisters. And oh, by the way, he's correct when he writes, there shall be no time for repentance or a change of mind when the Lord appears. Boom, one's gone, one's left. And you'll never be side by side again. You say, but what if I'm a saved person and they're not? And I'm surely at that time of judgment, I'm going to run to them and hug them. and feel, No, no, no. You will from that day forward be fully aligned with Christ. And they are setting themselves up as his enemy. And you will reject your spouse, your child, your parents. Doesn't matter. You're right now. You're together. Then we're separated. Never to be together, together again. You say, well, I don't like that. Well, you better start witnessing to your family. Because it's coming. This is real. Number two, in light of verses 36 to 41, number two, Jesus calls for readiness. 
And really, if you have room, I should have put another word. Jesus calls for continual readiness. Continual readiness. Verse 42, therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. Would have done, would not have let his house be broken into. He would have stayed awake, he would have stopped it. Do y'all perceive what I perceive in the text? Here's what Christ is saying. Most people will not be prepared. Some folks sitting here this morning, just by virtue of my experience in the past of having personal conversations, there are folks sitting here this morning, I hope in this room it is the minority, but there are folks in this room, some listening now, they are not ready. Jesus is saying most people will not be ready for his coming. But here's what he's teaching. Watch. Nobody knows the day or the hour, but because you don't know the day or the hour, because you don't know the day or the hour, be prepared at all times. We want to know the day or the hour, but the Lord's saying, I'm not going to tell you the day or the hour. I want you to be prepared at all times. Hey, the illustration uses verse 43 is real simple. I'll tell you straight up. If I know somebody's coming at my house and they're going to break in our house and rob our things and, and, and harm my family, I'm going to be ready. I'll, I'll be ready. I'll, buy, I'll go down and buy a few extra boxes if I have to. And I might even get one of them little laser sights so that they see it dancing on them as they come in. Which, which window? They're coming in the back or they're coming in that one? Okay. And at what time? At this time of the... Here's, here's the point. If tomorrow's headline is Anderson family robbed and killed at 3 a.m. and it's us, if that's tomorrow's headline, but before it actually happens, the Lord says, I'm letting you know what's going to happen. It doesn't have to be that, but if you do nothing, that's tomorrow's headline. Oh, I'm going to be ready, and I might even get some of you good old boys to join me. This is getting ready to happen. Get ready to go down. Can you want to come? Okay, we're going to keep it right. And I, got, and I got the police on speed dial, or the coroner, either one. I'm just serious. I'm sorry. My bad. Write this thought. Is Jesus saying he's a thief? No, Jesus is not a thief. He's saying that like a thief, his coming is going to be unexpected. Thieves don't announce when they're coming. They're unexpected. So this thought kind of occurred to me. And this will be a, a short point here, the second one. All right, Jeff. If the Lord's point is because of verse 36, because we don't know, then this is what's going to happen. The people are going to be unprepared. Then why doesn't he just tell us in advance? Well, it sounds like a pretty good question until we stop and realize. Now think with me. Had the Lord in 30 AD said exactly when he was coming back, what do we now know? It isn't in the first 2,000 years. So if he says, hey, the calendar's going to change. They're going to make the calendar based off of my birth. We're going to call this year such and such. In the year, what you guys are going to call, in the year of our Lord, Anno Domino, my life, whatever time he puts, 2,000-something, 3,000-something, 4,000-something, whatever it may be. I don't think it really goes that long, but let's just hypothetical. Had the Lord said that back then, how would people have been living from our lifetime before? How would Christians have been living? Kind of slack. Let me get this straight. Doesn't happen in my lifetime. I feel pretty healthy. I think I'm going to live for me. And whenever, I don't have to worry about the end of the age coming. I don't have to worry about Christ coming. So I think I'm going to live for me. And whenever I kind of see the end coming, I'm going to get right with God real quick. 
And that's how people. Now flip that little analogy, and let's just suppose, you've got to use your imagination in a lot of ways. Use your imagination here. What if the Lord, and you know it's the Lord, and it is absolutely genuine, factual, this is going to happen. The Lord says, at 9.48 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, American Time, at 9.48 on February the 22nd, 2022, I will come back. And life, as you know it on earth, will change. What time? 9.48 a.m. Eastern Standard Time and American Time. February 22nd, 2022. How are you going to be living that morning? What if you really believe that? How would you be living? Like if you know for a fact, 9.48. How are you living that morning? How are you living in the 16 days from now until then? You're like, wow, I've got 16 days in that day. Whatever you come up with and answer those two questions, here's what the Lord's saying. Yeah, live that way all the time. Just go ahead and live that way all the time. Because he's not told us he's coming back February 22nd, 948. Now, maybe he will. I think maybe the Lord put that in my heart for a reason. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Didn't realize till later. I mean, that's my son's birthday. Hey, it'd be a great day for the Lord to come back. But I'm not saying he's coming back on that day, though. It'd be great. So write this thought. Precisely because we do not know when he will come. What's the Lord saying? He's calling his people to live lives of faithfulness at all times. Because you don't know, then live... You would get lazy. You would try to time it if I told you exactly when. So live this way, faithful at all times, motivated by what? Love and the potential of Jesus' return at any moment. I added the love factor because living for the Lord out of love is the number one factor. All through the New Testament, it needs to be included. You say, man, I ought to be living a certain way because Jesus may come back. Yeah, that's your second great motivation. The other, the first great is, man... He loves me, and I love him, and I just want to live this way and serve him. And so then, based on that, and also, wow, he may come back at any time. So I ask you this question, and we're hitting the third point. I want you to be honest. You've got to kind of search your heart and know your pattern. In a normal week, I found this convicting for myself. In a normal week, how many times do thoughts of the rapture or Christ's second coming enter your mind? Here's the key. How many times in a normal week does thoughts of his second coming enter your mind in a way that affects how you live? Be honest. Don't say it out loud. Most in the room would probably have to say in a normal week before we started Matthew 24, Jeff, I hardly ever thought about the second coming. The Lord is saying, I want you to train your mind, change the way you think. You might want to do what I've done. You can't see it, but right there says, Matthew, I have reminders, and this is going to pop up every day on my phone for a while because I can put daily reminders. How frequent? Daily. How often you want to show? I want that to come up once a week. I want that to come up every month. This one says Matthew 24, 44. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I need to start being reminded. And so I'm really bad at it. And technology has a lot of downfalls. But maybe that's a good one. Like, hey, Jeff, hello. Oh, yeah. The Lord could come back. And anyway, he's going to come when we don't expect it. We've got to start training our minds. Number three. So here's what we have. No one knows. He describes life at the time of 
the flood is going to be how people are living then. So then he's always saying, based on that, don't you live like them. They're living life as usual. You live abnormally, unusually. So then he says, be ready. Be ready is the second point. Number three, Jesus now describes ready and not. He describes this is ready and that's not ready. And again, our minds are thinking of the old song. Ready or not, here I come. Ready or not, you want to be ready. You want to be ready. So now we have a parable, these seven verses based off on the, the previous eight or nine verses. These seven verses are going to kind of drive home. What does it look like, Lord? What does readiness look like? Number one, the faithful servant is ready. Number one, the faithful servant is ready. Now, a while ago, I stepped outside of the text to say that the main, major motivation is love. Guys, I'm going to, again, step outside of the text to what is obviously implied by Christ saying, be ready. You say, Jeff, if this is really going to happen, and all these things in verse 29 to 31 are actually going to happen, and there's going to be this some left, some taken, I want to be ready. Hey, what's the number one thing before you do anything else? You're not ready until you have done this. What is that? You better... You better make sure, I'm talking to all of you here, because this is real and we don't know when, you better make sure that you have put your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you from eternal punishment. You don't want to be on earth when this happens, but you definitely don't want to receive eternal punishment for your sins. So you better make sure, number one, I'm not ready until I have put my faith in Jesus dying on the cross for me. I'm trusting you alone, Lord. I'm a sinner. I'm putting my faith and trust in you. I need to be saved from eternal punishment and your death on the cross. Your goodness led to your mercy and your mercy brought about your blood and I I need that applied to me, and I receive that based on your promises. You're not ready until you know and you're sure that you've put your faith and trust in Christ alone. Now listen, you're writing those notes and listening at the same time. Once that happens, what we're getting ready to talk about can have a little bit of offensiveness to some of us. It's not my parable. It's Jesus' parable. So what's happening, verse 45 to 51? I hope all Christians know what I'm about to say. Guys, when you get saved, your whole relationship to God and with God changes. From what? You go from being an enemy of God to being the friend of God immediately. Listen, the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, there's a whole level of readiness that can never be taken away. What happens? You are no longer a sinner. You're now identified by the scriptures as a saint. You are a saint. You move from an outcast to being literally the child of God. You're not his enemy. You're not a sinner anymore. You're not an outcast anymore. You are a child, the adopted child of God. That's the game changer. That's the primary thing you are with God. But there is also this. This also happens. You go, once you get saved, you go from being a slave to sin, meaning when sin calls, I'm not a saved person. I don't have the Holy Spirit in me. I have to sin. I can't stop. I try to turn over a new leaf and do better. I can't stop. You go from being a slave to sin to being a slave to God. 
This is in the book of Romans. I know what Jesus says in John chapter 15. I know it. And if anybody in here says, I don't believe that, I don't have that belief, you need to read the book of Romans. Here's what the Lord is teaching in this parable. And oh, by the way, it's all through the New Testament. I am going to propose to you that, yes, we are children. That's our primary relationship with the Lord. But we are servants. The word servant here is doulos. We are the slaves of God. The difference is we are willing slaves of God and no longer unwilling slaves of sin. We want this. Zero amens. Amen, Jeff, you're right. We are become the slaves of God. If you're struggling with that, I just randomly typed out some names and later I thought, oh, better go check that and make sure they actually did refer to themselves as the doulos, servant, slaves of God. And sure enough, Paul, multiple times after John 15, multiple times, Paul's attitude, I'm the servant of God. Peter calls himself the servant of God. John calls himself the servant of God. The Lord's half-brothers, James and Jude, call themselves the servants of Jesus Christ and of God. And that's the only five I've checked. I'm sure there's many more. We become the slaves of God. Why are we slaves? Again, we are willing slaves. We're willing servants. Why? Write this thought. As Christians... We are created, we're, you, if you're a Christian, listen to me, you were created to serve God. You were made to serve God. And number two, you've been bought with a very expensive price. The precious, priceless blood of Christ bought you. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, don't you know you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. What he's saying is, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit because you belong to God. You are his. You say, Jeff, but we're children. Listen, I know we're children. We're just not to live like spoiled little rich brats. Not spoiled little rich brats. Like, I'm a child of the king. I don't have to do anything. No, if you're a real true child of God, you've been brought into the kingdom to help carry out the plan of the father. You're his child and his servant, both. Now look down. Let's hit this quickly. What's happening in 45 to 47 and then 49, I'm sorry, 48 to 51? Here we have two. So we don't know. The wording is tricky. Is this two separate servants, and they both have the same opportunity? Or is it the same servant who responds one way in a good way, and hypothetically he responds a different way? Either way, the point is the same. Here's what's happening. This servant, doulos, this slave, is told by his master. The master says, I'm leaving. I'm leaving you in charge. Here's some resources of mine. You're over these resources. What verse is it? Verse 46. 45, he has been set over his household to give. So it isn't about him. You have access to this so that you can give to the household. So they have an opportunity in what the master's saying, I'm leaving. I'm not telling you when I'm coming back. I'm just telling you what I want done. And here you're over all of this for the purpose of serving my people. So again, what are we noticing? Excuse me. We're noticing that we are given the resources of God for the purpose of ministering to the household of God. And you may read that and say, this appears to be just about for pastors, I believe. Oh, it has a special application to pastors. Guys, this is just a point that goes far beyond spiritual leaders and, and, and earthly leaders within the church. Far beyond that. It applies to all true Christians. I want to propose to you that this 
These two servants are brought before us to show, one, this is what being ready looks like, and this is what being ready does not look like. They're both given the opportunity. One responds one way, and one responds the other. Read a note that I wrote just, I think, this morning. This parable illustrates that being ready does not equate to selling and giving away all that you have. It does not equate to quitting your job. It does not equate to living in a panic state. Jesus is attaching the story of these two servants or this one servant responding two different ways. Why? To show that this is what readiness looks like and this is what readiness does not look like. What does readiness look like? It is primarily doing every day the things that the master has told you to do. Now, I want you to write this note is actually kind of two parts. The next one is a very important, probably one of the two or three most important notes on this whole thing. Because if you don't get anything else, I want you to get this because we can get the wrong idea of what readiness. Be awake. Somebody may read be awake early in the text and like, oh, boy, I'm getting so sleepy. I'm trying to obey. Okay, you have to sleep physically. Just don't fall asleep spiritually. Write this thought. What we learn in verse 45 to 47, faithful servants of God are pictured as those people who serve the other members of God's household while they wait for Jesus' coming. That's such an important note. So what does readiness look like? Faithful servants of God are put forth as those people who serve the other members of the family of God and the household of God while they wait for Christ to come. R.T. France words it this way. This helped me. It's like, okay, yeah, what's this readiness? Quote, the readiness of the good slave consists not in sitting by the window watching for his master. Now, that's what, no, it is not sitting by the window watching for his master, but in getting on with the job that he's been given. Get on with the job. Go do the job. That's, that's the main point of what I'm telling you. Guys, I'm going to break it down a little further. That's the main point. Readiness is not just sitting, twiddling our thumbs, and going off and living like a hermit by ourselves, affecting no one. Readiness is be doing the job I've given you to do faithfully. You say, well, where do we get these things? Apparently for this servant, it was to feed the rest of the household. What is our job? It's all through this. It's all through this. Read the Word of God to find the commands of God and be busy about doing it, and that's the ready life. And... It's God's Holy Spirit inside of you applying what he wants, what God says, go do that, don't do that, start doing that, no longer do that, and just following the leading of the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to go into all of that, Brother Jeff. We'll do that on another day. So here's the question. Which is it? Do we read the Bible to find out God's will for our life, or do we follow the Holy Spirit? What's the answer? Yes, good answer. We may pick that up later. What is Christ saying? Now let me close out the first servant. Look at verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. If I find you doing what I said, I'm going to put you over all my possessions. The faithful servant and the wise servant, the Lord is saying, it is wise to be serving my people Because when you do, verse 47 is going to take place in your life. So I've got to ask you real quick. You, 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 all of us. Does your Christian walk entail you serving God's people? It's not by accident that he puts that out as the faithful and wise. You're smart. 
you're wise when you serve God's people. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I read my Bible and I try to be holy. That's fabulous. That's not the whole calling. That's just the beginning. You are to be. You and I. Let me go further. Not just, oh, do you do it? Yeah, I do it. How do you serve the body? Well, I go to so-and-so's Bible study. That's great. How do you serve the household of God? Because he's going to come back and he's going to take an account of how we all serve the household of God. He's talking about two slaves here. One does the right thing. One does the wrong thing. Employers. Employers appreciate and value those workers that work wisely and faithfully even if the boss isn't around. That's the point. No boss around. You just keep working the same. The employer values that person. The employer often promotes that person. And that's what the Lord's saying. I want you, Grace View, to serve me as if you knew when I was coming. I want you to live that way all the time, and I will be aware of what you've done. And when you do that, verse 47 will happen in your life. Now, before I hit the second thought on this third point about the wicked servant, I want to give you one more thought. This is my opinion. I think the average Christian has a subtle belief. I'm getting ready to describe some sitting here this morning. I believe the average Christian in America has a subtle belief, and it's twofold. Subtle belief number one, unconsciously. It's so subtle, it's unconscious. Your kind of thought goes this way. Well, when we get to heaven, we'll all, we'll all have pretty much the same assignments. We're just going to be so glad to get to heaven. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great. And I'll see so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, and we're all just going to serve God. Listen, we're not all going to have the same assignments. Your level in there will vary from mine. The second thing I think that some people have that understand the first subtlety, like, yeah, that's not me. Here's the other little lie that I think we tell ourselves. When I get there, I won't really care. I'll just be so happy that I got to heaven. You're going to be thrilled that you got to heaven, but I'm telling you the whole tone of this all through the book of Matthew, the Lord keeps saying it to us over and over. Getting into heaven is purely by His grace based on the death of Christ. Your placement, though, within that, your position within that is based on how you live this life. And you're going to care. You're going to care. You may say, ah, I just want to live for me right now, and I already know I'm saved, and I'm not really serving the body of Christ in any way. I read my Bible and pray. You're going to wish you had served the body. I'm talking about all of you. Please ask yourself, how am I serving the household of God? You say, I don't know how. Then be in this book and find out what it says. When you walked in this morning, did you just mind your own business or have you been about the business of other people? And that should spill over to the whole life. You're going to care. I promise you're going to. Did you notice this this first one, this good servant, is given greater responsibility and his attitude isn't, really? I did all that work and I got to do more work? No, his attitude is great. Jesus is saying this like it's a good thing. You, will, you say, but work is work. No, no, no. In that life, in the kingdom, work will not be labor. Work will be work. You will be producing. You will want the highest position that God would have for you. It's based on this life. Lastly, the wicked servant is not ready. The wicked servant's not ready. The faithful servant, he's ready. You picture the faithful servant. You see him. The whole tone. Here, here it is. The faithful servant has been doing his thing. And unbeknownst to him, totally unannounced, here comes the master back. 
And the master's looking at the castle and the manor and the estate. And he walks in the front door and he tells no one. And he eases around the corner and he sees everything clean and everything's operated and apparently very well fed. And he looks in the kitchen and lo and behold, what's going on? Master, what's the master going to have on his face? I guess you have you seen everything? I have. Does it look like you? <laughs> well done. You're moving up. That's going to happen. They are well fed. You've been feeding them well. Well done. Move up to this position. And then there's this other guy. Verses 48 to 51, the wicked servant, he's not ready. Jesus describes the same opportunity as the first one had, but it's totally handled differently. Would you look again very quickly, verse 48. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed, he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards. I want to make this real for a moment. Let's put it picture in a way we can understand. Some of y'all work in places where there's only two or three of you, and some of you work in places there's 10 employees, right? So there's a boss, 10 employees. Some of you are like, man, where I work, there's 35 people. Some of you are like, there's like 100 of us on campus, and some of you are like hundreds. Here's the point. Have you ever seen this? You've seen it. When the boss, whether it's the boss over this group or the boss of the bosses, this so often happens. When the boss is known to be going to be out of town a couple of days. What day is that he's gone? Tuesday and Wednesday? Okay. Or he's gone the whole week. The boss is on vacation. Or the boss is at another plant, another job, or he's at a conference. The boss is gone. Almost always there are some employees that show their true colors. Some of y'all are like, oh, I've seen it and it drove me nuts. Boss is gone. Here's what happens. They come in late. Come in late. Every day, kind of late. And leave a little early. And during the day, long breaks. Extra long breaks. He's out of town. He ain't here. We're going to come in late. We're going to leave a little bit early. Some even go so far as to act like they're the boss. And they start telling everybody. And you just hear them over here fussing like, what are you doing? Why is he over there doing that? And then boss is gone. Nobody's there to rein him in. He wants it run like this now. Why are they actually doing it? They don't know he's not the boss. He's just acting like the boss. R.C. Sproul even wrote about some, like the way he wrote it, I'm like, man, where was this employment? R.C. Sproul wrote about employees that he knew, maybe apparently some of his perhaps, at some point in his life, watching internet pornography, day trading, literally. Go do a little work. I got to come back, check out my stocks. Oh, I got to time it right. This is where my mind's really at. I got to go do these things. Day trading, playing computer games, shopping on Amazon during work hours. And y'all are like, Jeff, that's America. That is America. Side note, give me a, is that you? I hope that's not grace for you. Don't be that kind of employee. They're gone. I'm not being watched. Going to come in a little late. Going to leave a little bit early. Going to take long breaks throughout. Nobody's here. 
one in charge is gone. Don't be that way. You're being like this person here when you do that. Write this thought. Like those employees I just described, many, I'm going to use the word supposed Christians, live wicked lives because they just assume that God doesn't see. I don't see him watching right now. And they assume there's not going to be a reckoning in the days to come. I'm getting by with this. And once the boss or the Lord announces he's coming, I'll get things right right before he comes. And it'll smooth all over. It'll be fine. But there is going to be no announcement. Remember, this master is going to come unannounced at a time when the servant is unaware. How do you work where you work? How do you work, those of you that are still working, how do you work when no one is watching? I remember my dad had an employee back in the 90s. I was helping him that summer. And my dad had an employee. And they do construction and pipe laying and things like that. And they came up with this wonderful invention probably back in the 60s or 70s called a ditch witch, right? So they have the backhoe, but the backhoe leaves a huge place, a big old ditch line across people's yards, messes their grass up, so you use that if you have to. But they had this thing called a ditch witch, right? And it just has this arm on the back, and it has these teeth on this chain, and the chain just goes round and around. And if you want the ditch to be 18 inches, you go like there. If you need to be 22, 4 inches, you go there, or you can get down like 4 or 5 feet. These are great things, and we had to run a water line at this house in Asheville area. The problem is Asheville is like very mountainous. And so this person had this yard and we're dropping the employee off and this water line has to be dug because the ditch witch can't like work on the side of a hill. So it's going to have to be hand dug the whole way and there's trees and there's rocks and there's roots. And like here's a shovel and here's a mattock and there's a saw and over there's some water and a pack of crackers and an apple or two. And my dad just dropped him off and left him. Totally unbeknown to the person. While they're working, over here, through the opening of the trees, is another house. And the person over there just got their kicks all day long watching this person. And when my dad came back to pick the person up, the guy up, the guy over there that had nothing to do with it all made a point. He came over and he says, I just want to tell you something. I've been watching that guy all day long. He has not stopped working. The only time he stopped working is run over there and get water and to eat something real quick. While he's walking back, he has not stopped. And from that moment, my dad, my dad still talks about that. And to this day, he knew, wow, if that person's on the job, I know I don't need to be there. They are going to do what they're supposed to do. How do you work? How do you live your Christian life? Is it totally reliant upon I'm aware of God's presence? Or, Lord, whether you come in my lifetime or not, I am going to do this in obedience to your command. Last thoughts. Here we go. Verse 48. See these words, taste them, because I want to invite you to answer. What does this person represent? Watch these words, verse 48, wicked. Verse 49, beat his fellow servants. Verse 49, eats, drinks with drunkards. Eats, drinks with drunkards. Verse 50, cut him in pieces. Put him with the hypocrites. There will be weeping, gnashing of teeth. What kind of person are we talking about? This is a what? This is an unsaved person. They're in our churches and they do church things and they act like they're one of us. But here's the problem. They're very comfortable abusing God's people. And they're very comfortable wallowing in sin. We all commit acts of sin. But true Christians don't just wallow in sin. Unbelievers are content and satisfied, very comfortable wallowing in sin and just beating up God's people. And when they can't stay there anymore, they go to another place and find another group of people they can start beating up. That's an unsafe person. That person needs to remember two things about God. 
God cares about practical righteousness. You're not going to heaven because you're righteous, but once you're saved, God wants you to live the righteous life, Romans 8, 1 through 4. God cares about the righteous life. And the other thing is, God cares about his church. This isn't Jeff Bartlett's church. This building is not this church. You and we are this church. This is not my church. It's not Mike's church. It's not Danny's church, Brandon's church, Don's church. It's not the deacon's church. It's not our teacher's church. We are the church, according to the word of God, and especially in the book of Acts. We belong to God. It's his. All we are ones that get to serve him. And what he says is, I'm giving you, all of you, these resources. Our resources vary, but I'm giving you these resources to serve my household, be busy doing it. I want to find you doing it when I come back. You picture the wicked servant. Totally unannounced. He's doing what he's been doing, and here comes the master. And he's not at the house, and so the master goes to the local bar. Do you, you see it? And that front door opens, and there's sun shining behind him, and he recognizes that silhouette as he's sitting over there getting drunk with the drunkards. Or the master comes back, can't find him, goes to his bedroom, and it's 9.30 in the morning, and he opens the door, and he wakes up. Oh, oh, too late, too late. Or he walks in the house and finds him yelling and screaming and hitting one of the other people of the household. He said, yeah, what would happen in that situation? We don't have to wonder. Verse number 51, he will cut him in pieces and he'll put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All we have before us are two, is one parable with two different scenarios. God's true people, you'll recognize them because they'll be ready when he comes because they've trusted Christ alone and they've been obeying what the Lord called them to do. This other person, they're not really in it. Their heart's not in it. They squander the opportunity. They don't trust Christ and they don't really serve God's body and, and household. And the Lord is going to say, a division is coming. Heads bowed, eyes closed just for a moment. There are three parables in our text that are coming up in the end of 24 that we just read and two coming in chapter 25. Guys, all three of them have an illusion. If we were paying attention, the Lord basically gave hints, a delay is coming. A delay is coming. We read chapter 24, verse 48. Do you remember? But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. My master's delayed. Chapter 25, talking about the ten virgins. Hopefully we look at it next week. Verse 5, as the bridegroom was delayed. Chapter 25, verse number 19, when we're talking about the, 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 the master gives out talents. Verse number 19, now after a long time, the master of those servants came. Hey, it's been 2,000 years. I understand that. Grace for you. I get it. The Lord is saying, grace for you, because you do not know the day or the hour, I want you to live the exact same as if you knew it was going to be February 22nd. And when February 22nd comes and goes, I want you to live the same no matter what. Just before we pray, I want to remind us. A division is coming. Be sure that you have been saved. Answer this question in your heart. Which describes you better? Faithful service to the household of God or sinful indulgence and abuse of other people. Grace for you, listen. Eating is not sinful. Drinking, shopping, working on our houses and our cars, following a team. None of those, they're not sinful in and of themselves. But what we have to do is 
ask ourselves, has anything out there gripped me so much, I am more concerned, I give it more attention, my thoughts are there more than on the fact that Jesus is coming back, could be any moment, and I need to be about his business. Has any fine or necessary thing of the daily life captured your heart? Got to ask you one more time, how specifically do you Serve the family. Answer that right now in your heart. You and God, God knows if you're telling the truth. Don't fabricate anything. How do I not just serve me in my relationship with God? How do I serve the family of God? That's the faithful and wise servant that will be promoted. And what if Christ came this week? This week. What do you need to get fixed? What do you need to work on? What needs to change? If he came back this week. Let's stand this morning. Would you stand? Father, Father, we're very forgetful, and we get caught up. We have a habit. We need our habits changed. Most of us are like me, and I confess, I don't think about the second coming of the Lord like I should. And so, Lord, I pray that you would impress this passage upon me in such a way that all of this prophecy, discussion, and study that we've done, that we'll be shall we live, and that we would answer faithfully, and wisely serving one another, obediently carrying out your commands and obeying the Holy Spirit as he prompts us from within. Lord, may that describe us as we go forth now. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.